Hume Lake. We just got back from Hume Lake, the junior high group. That was awesome. Yeah, Whistler. Yeah. Raise your, raise your hand. Have you been to Hume Lake, anybody? Yeah. yeah. Keep it raised if you got saved at Hume Lake. Anybody get saved at Hume Lake? Nice. Come on, baby. That's awesome. So that's our group there. On the uh, left is junior high group. Right is the high school group. And uh, I just want to say thank you. If you don't know, we have a generous church. We raise funds every year for these kids to go to Hume. And Hume, Hume's an awesome camp, and, but you pay a premium for it. And I'll pay that every time if kids are getting saved. And so you don't got to go to a camp to get saved. But if it's happening, I want to be there. Because um, we tell them the same thing every week. And then they come back and they're like, God loves me. I'm like, telling you that for a week, all year. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, the Holy Spirit does the work. And there's an anointing on that place, and we raise fun. We do, like, bake sales, and it's, like, we had an awesome bake sale, like, 1000 bucks for a bake sale, and, like, we have a generous church. Thank you. I mean, that's a reflection of a generous God. That's the way it should be. We, we represent. We're the flag bearers for Christ. I mean, who should be generous but us because we've been given much. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's our, our, high, our, our junior high group. And um, Pastor Brian is our, our usual guy, so if this is your first time, I'm not the guy. It gets better. Come back next. I don't know. I think he's, he's actually uh, had a vocal cord granuloma is what they call it. And I was realizing that when he teaches, he doesn't drink water. Like, I don't know how he does it, but maybe that's why. He just doesn't. And he, but no, there was a service. I don't know if you guys were here a few years ago. It was a, a Good Friday service. And, and it was just passionate and and. I've never seen anybody yell the way that he yelled when, when he said Jesus on the cross and he yelled, it is finished. And like, the speakers like popped. It was, and I think, I mean, so he goes hard and his vocal cords are out for the next set of weeks and, and they needed a plan D and I was the guy. So I was like, I'll, I'll come. And we have some great Bible teachers in this church. I mean, amen. We've been studying through uh, Ephesians for a month, and we're already in chapter 2, Calvary Slow Style, and, and I'm by far the least of those teachers. We've got Jeff Jackson coming next week and teaching on Ephesians 8, 9, and 10, memory verses, by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, I'm a foolish man, and we're going we're gonna to listen to a foolish message right now, which must mean one thing. we got a great God. I mean, Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. He's alive, moving in power. The Holy Spirit is really doing what he, what he says he does. Changes lives. Brings people from death to life. Because it's definitely not based on my merit. I mean, God is real. you got to know that. And, and I'm just humbled to be a part of it. And so, if you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, let's see your Bibles. Anybody bring their Bibles? Raise them up. Real Bibles, fake Bibles. Some, yeah. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles right back left in that little white piece there. And, and if you don't own one, um, take it. It's yours. Keep it. So uh, grab a Bible, please, because we're going be, to be reading some serious scripture, some of the most famous and rich scripture in the entire Bible. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's amazing. Um, Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 
Got it up there just in case. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, you're good. You make, you make dead things alive things. You come into our situation and, and intervene and resurrect lives. You redeem. Holy Spirit, be moving in power now. Do what only you can do. Access the hearts. Soften hearts. Open eyes to see see you, Jesus, see your face, the beauty that you are, the greatness, the glory. Pray, uh, pray these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So, um, this is Ephesians. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say that Ephesians is the most sublime and marvelous depiction of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's an amazing book. Six chapters. The first three chapters is, is cosmic. It's, ama- it's all about, it's doctrine. It's what we hold true to. I mean, it's, it's what the church doesn't let go. And the next three chapters is, okay, so how do you live that out? What does it look like practically to live life as a Christian? We just got done with the first chapter and it was just Jesus Christ on the top of the circle of the universe and all about predestination, and you've been blessed since before time with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and just just amazing truths. These are these are verses and scripture that you can't read fast. I don't know if you're like me and you read textbooks in school, but you read a whole paragraph and you don't know what you just read because it was just like dense. This is the this is this is it. This is like man, what did I just read? You got to read this slow. And the crazy thing is, Paul the apostle is in prison writing this. And he is just on fire, like writing run-on sentence after run-on sentence after run-on sentence. So it reads fast, but his words are just packed. And so it's been amazing to study through this. And specifically, these 10 verses in chapter 2 are some of the most, like I said, rich and, and famous verses on what it means to be saved. For by grace you have been saved says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
What does it mean to be saved? I mean, if I had one message, and that, that'd be the message, right? Like, what, if there's anything you want to talk to someone about or tell somebody, wouldn't it be how to get life forever, ever, now and forever, and eternity versus death now and forever? I mean, if, if you're, if, I mean, so if you're here and you're not a Christian and, and you're like, man, this whole worship thing is weird and, and this whole church thing is weird, or, or maybe you just haven't bought in, I mean, make an assumption here. Assume, assume this Bible is real. And it's probably a big assumption maybe for some people. I don't know. This Bible is real and, 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 and God is good, just, loving, and righteous. And, and we have sinned against him, and so there's separation. And instead of spending life and eternity separated from him, hell, wrath, God sends his son to die for us. Wouldn't that be like the most amazing thing you'd want to hear about? I mean, if, if that was true, if that was true, and people, your friends, maybe got around on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and, and sung about this truth, and they got around you and didn't tell you, wouldn't that be the most hateful thing ever? And so salvation, maybe you think you've heard this, what does it mean to be saved a million times, but it can never be taken for granted. It can never be just a uh, just rote answer. This, I mean, this Bible, this it's a book of reminders, really. It's a storyline reminding us of a couple things. Who God is, how good he is. And two, what we as his people do with that goodness, how we steward it. And so over and over again, it's God showing us how good he is to his people. And over and over again, his people, how they steward it, how they mess it up all throughout the Old Testament. And God keeps coming back and how he does it over and over again until the culmination of bringing his son into the earth to do what we could never do. And so Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is all about what it means to be saved. And, and as Christians, we talk a lot about what it means to be saved. I was talking on the phone with my brother, and I said, what do you think it means when I say that one of my junior hires got saved at Hume Lake? And he said, well, did he fall into a river? Whatever we talk about when we talk about being saved, it better line up with what's being said here. And so verses, and Paul breaks it out for us real nicely in three parts. He did all the work for us. The first three verses is all about life apart from God. What are we saved from? So this whole salvation thing, what's it about? What are we actually, what kind of a life are we saved from? And then we're going to skip down to the last section of this part of Scripture, 8, 9, and 10, the last third is all about what we're saved to. What kind of a life are we saved into? What are we saved for? What kind of a life does God have for us? This is the light. Verses 1 to 3 is the darkness. It's, it's, it's the bad news. 8, 9, and 10 is the good news. And, and 4, 5, 6, 7, the middle, fittingly, is the bridge. The bridge is those. How do we get from here to there? How do we get from there to here? What do we save through? How do we, how do we get this salvation? How do we get from, from darkness to light? And so let's, let's go, go ahead and just get right into it. First point, what are we saved from? What kind of a life is a life without God? I'll read it again for us, the first three verses. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to see that there's some heavy stuff, death and wrath and sin. Like this is the part of, this is the part of church where you don't want to hear about it. This is the part of church where our flesh doesn't want to, doesn't want to be at church for this kind of stuff because it's, it's, it's bad. It's not, it's offensive. It's offensive to our flesh. You're dead. And it starts off with the most relevant subject for anybody here and you. If I were to throw you a copy of your yearbook, the first page you turn to is the table of contents. No, your page, you and you, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. You say, I'm not dead, I'm alive. Well, you're dead in your spirit. That's the doctrine here. You're dead in spirit from birth. So you're, you're alive from human perspective, but you're dead from God's perspective, which is the ultimate perspective because that's the eternal perspective. You're dead in trespasses and sins. So what's sin? Sin is enslavement. Sin is being, you're enslaved to sin. You're, you're, you're helpless to sin. Just like being dead. When you're dead, you, you, you can't help yourself, whether you're pretty dead or ugly dead. You're, you're flatlined. You're not going to help yourself. And sin, you're, you're enslaved to it. And so what are we enslaved to? What are, what are some of our enemies? And Paul tells us three enemies, our three enemies that we have. If you didn't know, you're being attacked. There's a Bible, I mean, here in chapter 6, it says there's a battle in the unseen realms. Three enemies that we have apart from God. The world, following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, following the power of the air. And the flesh, the passions of the flesh, our sinful nature. And that word following doesn't quite get it in the English. It's, it's much more, um, that word following is to be controlled by, to be mastered by in the Greek. We're, we're mastered by the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. The course of this world literally means the spirit of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? It's an amazing like, set of phrases like prince of the power of the air. It's got a lot of names in the Bible, right? Satan, Lucifer, devil. It's amazing because he says the prince of the power of the air. It's like the air up here. The devil's not some underground, like, middle earth being that you're going to go to one day if you do bad. It's, he's all around us. Genesis says he's crouched at the door waiting for us to slip up. People say, I don't believe in the devil. Well, the devil believes in you. The prince of the power of the air. And as interesting as it would be to study those in depth, what I want to say is the key to our, our sinful enslavement is the flesh. The passions of the flesh. Our sinful nature. And that word nature in the Greek is sarx, S-A-R-X. It's not our, our physical flesh. It's not our skin. It's, it's our self-centered human nature. Self-centeredness is what we're enslaved to. And, and really, by studying this, you see what the other two are, the world and, and the prince of the power of the air. Because what made the devil the devil? In, in, in kind of in passing, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, do not be conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Conceit made the devil the devil. He was prideful. He was God's right-hand angel and thought he could do better than God. And his pride made the devil the devil. And so when we see the flesh as the self-centered human nature, we really see what makes Satan, Satan, what makes the world, the world, self-centeredness. And I've never heard it put better in a definition of, of what sin is 
than, than a, a Latin phrase coined by St. Augustine and developed by Martin Luther, carried out by Karl Barth, all these great theologians. It's a Latin phrase, homo incurvitus in se, incurvitus in se. Human beings are curved back on ourselves. And so here's the quote. Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. It's the sinful, self-centered human heart at the center of our enmity against God, of our depravity from God and our, our, our deadness in our spirit. We're enslaved to it. I mean, Paul even talks about this in Romans chapter seven, fifteen. For I do not understand my actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever feel like that? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We're dead in our sin. You don't have the ability even though you want to. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So what, is it, what does this all mean? It means, it means separated from God. Our, our hearts are upside down from, from the way God would have it. It means our hearts are desire factories. And, and 24-7, 365, we're, we're analyzing the world on how it can serve me. Even God, we're using to bend back on ourselves. And so you say, I'm not, I'm not a cruel person. I'm not self-centered. I'm not this egotistical because, yeah, self-centeredness, no one would doubt that the egotistical maniacs of the world, Hitlers, weren't the most proud, self-centered people on the planet. But, but self-centeredness works itself out more in, in morality, in being a good person, behavior modification. Because what better way can you get someone to be in your debt than to be a good person, to treat them well? What better way can you, can you take ownership of your goodness than to, than to serve and so you serve and you do good things and you, you're a good son or a good daughter or you're a good student or a good parent trying to do good things, but really you're serving yourself. You're looking for your own, your own self-worth. I was watching a, a documentary. I like to watch documentaries and, and it was a, a 30 for 30 ESPN sports documentary. And I think they put it on Netflix because of the Winter Olympics, but it was on the whole winter... Uh, the whole ice skating controversy in the 90s, 1994, 96, between who? Anybody remember? Huh? Kerrigan. Kerrigan, Tanya Harding. Why me? So Tanya Harding was just all about getting this world championship, and they said that she plotted to hurt the other contestant in order to get what she wanted. And they, they said something striking, the, the, the kind of the commentators, and they said for, for Tanya, ice skating was, was her ticket out of the gutter. It was, it was something she can hold her hat on and say, no matter else, what, what else happens to me in life, at least I have this. We're all looking for that. We're all looking for something we can say, I don't belong in the gutter, and if, at least if I do this, if I do this set of things, I can hold my hat on that. Including religiousness, being religious. 
as Martin Luther says, we curvedly, viciously seek all things, even God, for our own sake. Because religiousness, I mean, I mean, we, we, we read our Bibles and, and, and we memorize Scripture or pray or, or give tithes, but it's for ourselves apart from God because the minute we don't get a prayer answered, we're out. I had a friend in college and he was walking with the Lord and a couple years out, I was like, man, how, how's your spiritual walk? How are you doing? How's, what's God doing in your life? He's like, he's like I'm out. I'm, I, I don't walk with God anymore because no matter how much I prayed, no matter how much I read my Bible, I never got ahead. I never got, I never got what, I, what I prayed for. I never got what I wanted because, because you're serving yourself versus serving God. Self-centeredness, can you see it clings to everything? And it's miserable. It's miserable. Look at the words that he's using. Uh, Paul, in, in these first couple chapters, the passions of the flesh. The passions is another of those words that in the Greek, epitomia, it's an inordinate amount of desire. It's an addiction, a codependency to your own self-ego. Everyone knows addiction is not something that's, that's nice. It's miserable. And so, so the more, I mean, ego, what's more addicting than ego? The more, the more acclaim you get, the more praise, the more self-adulation, I mean, the more likes, Facebook, friends, followers, the more you need because it's never enough. It's miserable. You're constantly looking for something to say that I'm really worth it. I'm really getting to the place where I want to be. It's exhausting. And he says we're objects of wrath. Objects of wrath. This self-centeredness makes us objects of wrath. C.S. Lewis talks about there's nothing more miserable than self-centeredness. It's hell inside of you. It's so agonizing and miserable and it will eventually take you to hell. Because we're, we're being like our own, we're, we're moving in the footsteps of our earthly father. The, the enemy, Satan. In First in, in John, John, the beloved, the apostle, writes in so much contrast, black and white. He says, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the enemy. You're a child of the devil. It's like, there's no third direction. And as we, as we walk in this self-centeredness and this separation from God we're, 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 and, and making those decisions of just pride and self-serving, it's like heaping up wrath for us rather than walking in what Jesus would have us in giving and serving and freedom. The sin, this whole sin topic is, is not a, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I hope someone talks to me for a half hour about sin, how sinful I am. But you got to remember it because you got to see how far you came, how, how, how costly God went and, and the indispensability of it to, to know where you are today. It's like, it's like Paul is, bless you, Paul is painting this black, portrait, just splashing black paint everywhere, oil even, like just tar. So when the color comes, the but God comes, it's like, you, it's vibrant. It shocks you out of it. It's like traumatic tranquility. It's amazing. So that's enough. That's enough of the, the sin. That's enough of what are we saved from? What are we saved to? What kind of a life does God intend for you? If not self-centeredness and separation from God and and, and following the course of this world and following the enemy and following our own sinful flesh, then what is it? What kind of a life would we have? And so there's three things, Paul, Paul, just like there's three enemies. And I'll read 8, 9, and 10 for us. For by grace, this is a memory verse here, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's not a lot of detail on the kind of life we have. It's not going to tell you what school to go to or what job to take up, but it gives us a lot of suggestions. Paul gives us some profound suggestions on the kind of life, the kind of life God intends for us. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. A lot of us think we understand that because, I mean, yeah, I love a gracious God, I love a faith God, but grace, grace at the very least, grace is, so grace is a gift, which means you can't, you can't earn it. You can't do enough. You can't deserve it. It's not by your pedigree. It's not by your merit. Grace is a gift given from God. And, and so God wants you to see that. When you see that everything is a gift, it, it humbles you. It, 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 you can confide in that. And a life of faith. What's a life of faith? Faith is not just intellectual understanding. It is that because, I mean, the Bible says by the renewing of your mind, we walk in that. I mean, you've got to know. I mean, God gives us a mind for a reason to understand what he's done for us, but it's, it's, it's trust, faith. So you can rest. A faithful person is a restful person. A gracious person is a, is a humble person, a confident person because of what you've been given. It's all a gift anyways. You can rest in that. Faith, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. But the, the one I want to focus on is, is boasting. You should not boast. What does being saved have to do with not boasting? Because I think this word boast, I mean, what do we think of when we think of boasting? Bragging, being braggadocious. In, in the first century, they would have understood bragging as, as boastfulness. As, this is war talk. This is battle cries. I'm sure you've seen war movies like Braveheart, Gladiator, Troy. I mean, these wars that they had weren't like s- tactical strategies of bombing someone miles away. It was line up your men, we'll line up ours, and see who doesn't die first. And so imagine being on the front lines of a battle like that, and now you've got to basically... I mean, you have less than a 50% chance of coming back home. You have to boast. You have to, you have to conjure up confidence. And so they would say things the night before or the morning before. I mean, I mean, Mel Gibson in his speech in Braveheart, you know, it's like, we're better than them. And then everyone yells, yeah. You know, it's like, we, we have the best armor, the best spears and swords. And everyone yells. And it's just, we have, we have the best warrior king who can deliver the best death blow with the longest spear, all these things are boasting in. And so you're like, I'm not a warrior. What does that have to do with anything? Like, what does boasting have to do with being saved? It's because we're all looking for a boast. We're all looking for something we can look, look to. Because they were, just weren't looking at those things. They were looking to those things. So when things got difficult, that would give them their self-confidence. When things got hard, they can face life. In Jeremiah 9, 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. We're all looking for a boast. Something we can say that we're proud of it. We're confident in this. I have a sense of value, a sense of worth. Just like Tanya Harding, something we can hang our hat on. Something we can prove to ourselves that we're, we're, we don't belong in the gutter. We're not just looking at them, we're looking to them. It's an identity factor. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting constantly looking for something to identify in, 
When we talk about identity all the time in the junior high group because it's right in your face. Am I going to be a skateboarder today or a cowboy today or a prep today or a jock today, whatever, but it never gets old. What kind of career am I going to have? What kind of family am I going to have? Where, where's my identity? What can I rest in? It's an idea, what can we be proud of? And it's, exa- it's exhausting. It's a, it's, a, it's a mad dash to scramble for performance. We're all doing it, whether it's grades because you're a good student or career and salary or whatever, X, Y, Z. There's, a, there's a, a boast factor, an identity factor that we're all looking for, self-esteem. And so what, what, let's get practical. What, what are some marks then? What are some marks of a boasting life versus a life that's grace and, and faith, rest? Well, one is it's a life of, it's a life of anger and, and, and annoyance versus a life of contentment and, and, and joy. Because if you know everything's a gift, if you know everything you have isn't deserved, you can rest. You can rest easy and know I've been given more than I deserve. There's joy there. There's contentment there. Versus if everything is because you work so hard for it and you deserve it, the moment you don't get what you deserve, you're upset. You're annoyed. You're walking around with a, an undercut of, of just grumpiness because you're never getting what's due to you. It's, it's annoyance versus, versus joy, contentment. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's okay to get excited. This is church. We're talking about salvation. Like, where else can you get excited than without salvation? This is news. News is the important stuff you talk about. I mean, we're made to lift our hands and raise them and, and enjoy them. This is the house of God. It's okay to do that. And so, annoyed versus anger. Salvation is what we're, what we're content in. I remember, I remember with the youth group, uh, I did a study with them a couple years ago, and I said, just write down, just write down question. Just write down a question you have. Because I know these kids have questions. Imagine being a junior higher, all these emotions, and you got questions. Junior high group, youth group can just be a, a friend fest and go and have friends, and before you know it, you're in college and you don't have any relationship with God, the most important relationship. And so run, anonymously write down your questions and never forget. And I told him, I'll do a message on each one. And one of them wrote down, why are Christians always so happy? And at first I was like, I thought they were messing with me maybe. I was like, uh, this is anonymous, so I can't tell if this is serious or not. And so I, I went back and I, I kind of, you know, did my homework and studied and kind of came back with more of a, trying to temper their their this, this euphoric, like, everything's always happy with, like, their suffering, but joy is everlasting. But in reality, I should have, Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. We've been given so much. We see reality, where we came from, the sin versus one to three that we were lifted up from. And I think they thought that because, I mean, we just laugh. We laugh. The leaders, all of us, we're, we're, we're just happy to be, that's why they put us two walls over. It's because we were so loud. It's like, we can't concentrate in the main sanctuary when you guys are just having so much fun. And so it's, it's, it should be like that. And it's not, it's not your temperament. It's, it's because you know what God's done for you. You see it. What's another mark? Boastfulness versus restfulness and grace and faith. It's a life of being cold-hearted versus a life of warmth. It's a life of disdain, looking down on people versus a life of accepting people. Christians are the most accepting people on the planet because we see that we don't deserve what we've been given. 
we see that, that we've been accepted when we didn't deserve to be. So, of course, we've got to accept people. I mean, the gospel's for everybody. I mean, we throw around this word intolerance a lot. Christians are the most tolerant. It says, and you were dead in your trespass. That's for everybody. And you were saved by grace. That's for everybody. This is, he's talking to gent- This is profound in this day and age because he's talking to Gentiles, people that are separated from the commonwealth of Israel. And he says, it's for all of you. Paul himself was, you know, killed Christians. We're, we're, we're warm, we're gracious, and, and saved versus cold and, and constantly looking for our way to, it's like we never grow out of bullying. It's like we're constantly looking for something we can, once we find that identity factor, if someone else doesn't have it, we look down on them. If you're in shape and someone else is, well, it's because you're lazy, so you look down on them. If you have money and someone else doesn't, it's because you're, you, didn't, you didn't work as hard as I did. And if you're poor and you look down on the rich people, it's because they're selfish and, and they just got lucky. I mean, there's disdain always if you're separated from God. There's just this constant looking down versus acceptance, because you know that God looked down on you and accepted you, so how could you look down on anybody else? And the last one is life of boasting and versus a life of rest, faith, grace, is bitterness versus forgiveness. I mean, if you've been forgiven much, you have to forgive. You can empathize. You understand you didn't deserve it, so you can forgive others versus bitter. The only way you can keep a grudge is to be sure you're superior, because if, if if you wouldn't do what they did to you, then you can be superior and lord it over them. Never let them go. Never let it go. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down your anger and give a foothold for the devil. The devil loves when you hold bitterness. You ever hear that bitterness is drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die? It's miserable. Self-centeredness, this detachment from God versus life of faith, rest, confidence in Jesus. You can lay your arms down. You can cease fire. That's what we're saved to. So what are we saved through? How do we get this life of grace and faith and no boasting that you're painting this picture of? How do I, how do I get this? The greatest conjunction, the greatest contradiction, the greatest switch in the, con- in, in the history of literature, the earth, but God. It's like if you hear the word but, you, whatever someone said before that just got refuted. So if someone says to you, no offense, but you better get ready to be offended, right? If someone says to you, you were dead, but you better get ready to be alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, because of the great love that, that's not because of the great love that you deserve, because of the great love that you desire, because of the great love that your worth. It's because of the great love that he loved you. He loves you because he loves you. But God made us alive together with Christ. I was studying for this the other day, and I saw a monarch butterfly. It had like a six-foot wingspan. It was massive. And, and, and I was thinking about how as Christians, we use the, the, the metaphor like God changes us the way he changes caterpillars and the butterflies, and it sounds nice. It's warm. But, but in actuality, God changes dead caterpillars into butterflies. That's the miracle. When you're dead, you have nothing to, to offer, and God makes us alive because of the great love with which he loves us. And look at this. He says, so in the Greek, it's the same, it's the same prefix, S-Y-N, sin, to be with, synonymous. He says, we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. 
we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. It's amazing. This is an amazing statement. With Christ, we're with him. We're seated with him. We're made alive with him. And we're at the right hand of the throne with him. And the right hand of the throne, people in the first century would have understood this perfectly because, it's, again, it's another battle war. Like war, This is war culture in first century, like Romans and all that. When the great warrior came back from the, from the war and, and conquering that all he had done to the capital city, in all his honor and all his glory, they put him to the right hand of the king, the highest place of honor. And so Jesus, after all he had done here on his earthly ministry, walking in perfect alignment with God, going to the cross as he said he did, drinking the cup of wrath, rising and ascending, it would make perfect sense that he would ascend at the right hand of the Father, above the circle of the universe, the place of highest honor. And it says, we're there with him? How could that be? Past tense? Well, we're not there now. We're here, right? It's not, we're not literally seated there. We're seated here now. We're not literally there. We're legally there. Like an adoption, we're legally, the papers have been signed. We're legally, positionally there. When you believe in Jesus Christ, all your sins are so hidden and covered in him, you're treated like you had done everything that Jesus Christ did. And so you're so, God delights in you, honors you, accepts you, rejoices over you the way he does his own son. It's the gospel. How? How is that possible? How is that possible that I get what he gets? Well, there's a hint here in, in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That word kindness is another one of those words that in the Greek, it's, it's not a sentimental love that we're saved by. It's a sacrificial love. It's love in action. Jesus Christ put his words where his mouth were. He put his money where his mouth were. He walked the walk and talked the talk. And what did he do? What did he do for us? Well, let's put it all together. What, what's sin? Self-centeredness, which is what? us putting ourselves in the place where God deserves to be on his seat. It's idolatry. We idolize ourselves. First commandment. No other gods before you but myself. I mean, it's idolatry. We're putting ourselves in God's seat. So in order for us to be saved, God put himself in our seat where we deserve to be, on the cross. And so because Christ took our punishment seat that we deserve, we get his glory seat that he deserved. Verse 3, he took on the wrath. He took on all punishment, physical and eternal. When he was on the cross, he didn't say, my feet, my feet, because they had thorns in them. He didn't say, my head, my head, because they had crown of thorns in them. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on him. There was darkness over the land. He absorbed wrath for everybody in that moment so we would never have to have God turn his back on us. So we would be seated at the right hand of the Father the way he is. Christ took the physical death for, the, for our eternal wrath so we would never have to feel that, experience that. Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. It's the gospel. That's the goal, God. I haven't, I've never heard it put more succinctly, the gospel, than, than what John Stott wrote. The essence of sin is us 
substituting ourselves for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. How does that work? How does that work? Do you want to be separated, torn from your self-centeredness, from your exhaustion of finding your own identity and the scramble for achievement? How did Christ save you? He did the ultimate unself-centered thing. So you'd be blasted out of your own self-centeredness. He went from his seat down to earth and became a servant. The opposite of what we do for us. Laid his life down for yours. See him doing that. Think about that. If God can say, my life for you, then, then, then you've got to say, well, then my life for you, God. I don't need to be self-centered anymore because I'm filled. I don't need to boast because I'm, I'm at the highest place of honor with God. I can rest. I can see that. And how does that work? Well, there's, there's one boast that we're allowed to boast in. There's one boast that stops all other boasting, stops all, over, all other scrambling for identity, all other searching for a reason why we don't belong in the gutter or, or something we can hold our hat on. Remember we read verse... Remember we read Jeremiah 23, chapter 9, verse 23, let not the rich man boast in his riches, the wise man boast in his wisdom. Verse 24 says, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. In Galatians 6 also, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's the boast that stops other boasting, ends all scrambling, boasting in Christ. We're crucified to the world and the world's crucified to us. What does that mean? How does does this happen? I remember I I was at a sports camp and there was a college kid there telling his testimony. He's actually now a pro, and he was saying he was at a basketball practice, and one of his teammates, I mean, they found out that he was a virgin. They're like, why? Making fun of him. And he said, because I love God more than I love sex. And it sounds kiddish, but it's, that's boasting. That's, now the, that's being crucified to the world. Now you're not following the course of the world. Now you're not swayed by what everyone else thinks. Now you you have content. Now you have identity. Can you do that? Remember how I said those those old soldiers, those battle cries, those boasting, they would boast in, in the king with the greatest death blow and the longest spear. Well, we have a king who didn't come to deliver the death blow. He came to take on the death blow. He didn't come with the longest spear. He came to take the spear in his side for us. See him doing that for you. It's as, if, it's as if we're on the battlefield and we're all dying and God says, I'm going to come to you and bandage your wounds and put my armor on you and take on the nails, take on the arrows for you. That's what saves us. The greatest boast of all, 
I mean, let me walk you across the threshold of the most beautiful house you've ever seen, the great Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we boast in. Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Furthermore, who is risen, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. As it is written, we are killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor angels nor rulers nor powers, nor anything in all the earth will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we boast in. And that's the worship team to come on up. I'm reminded of my, my favorite hymn. It's like, how do I get, I, I mean, how do I be saved? Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the ways of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his mercy and grace, of his glory and grace. If you're here and you're a Christian, You've been adopted. You're part of God's family. And so we take part in the sacraments, the communion, as a reminder of what God did for us, as an appreciation, as a worship, worship moment of saying, God, this juice represents the blood on the cross that was spilt for me. This cracker represents your body that was broken for me. And so worship him together in that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can't do that because you're not a part of the family. The Bible says not to partake of communion in an unworthy manner. Convert, choose Christ. The Bible says that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here and you need prayer, make sure you don't leave without being prayed for. We're here to pray for you. We've got leaders here and come over to the side. Just worship our King our Heavenly Father, our beloved Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.